Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope that you're having a great first day of the week. This first slide, a reminder that our next book that we're all reading is the book of Judges. Only three chapters a day, so that's pretty manageable, I think. But today we continue on with a last look at the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is a book of war. It's a book of conquest. Uh, If it were made into a TV series, I don't know, it might be R-rated R. Uh, It might be tough. There are not too many people who can stomach some of the things that are described in the book of Joshua. But it does reflect the reality that we still live under today. It was a reality for that generation that they needed to conquer all those nations. They needed to subdue them. And they had God's permission to do so, but they still had to do it. And that must have been a very tough thing for them to do. And it's a reflection on the spiritual war that we're undergoing today. It's tough. You know, and some of us can pretend that the war is not taking place. Some of us can give in to the gods that surround our culture and say that everything is okay. But it is not. This book is a reflection of the reality that we live on a daily basis. We cannot forget that we are at war. As many as the forces of evil may try to whisper in your ear and tell you everything is fine, everything is nice, it is not in the heavenly realms. And the book of Revelation will show that clearly when we get to it. But if anything, the book of Joshua is like a pre-Armageddon. It's like a reflection, a shadow of that ultimate Armageddon fight that we will live. We can't forget what we're reminded of through the Apostle Paul. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a battle that we're fighting here physically as Joshua had to. That's how it's different. We're not fighting people. We're fighting much more insidious forces, forces that in reality we cannot fight because number one, we can't see them. And number two, they're much more powerful than we can ever imagine. However, in Christ with the full armor of God, like Paul says here, we can put that on. So when the day of evil comes and mind you, it will come. The scriptures don't say if the day of evil comes, it says when it comes, you may be able to stand. And it's only through Christ we can stand. Just like Joshua and Israel were able to stand against all those opposing forces that were better prepared than they, more numerous than they, God was able to help them stand. Brothers, sisters, believe you can stand against these insidious forces today. But like Joshua and the Israelites at that generation, you have to believe that these have been given over to you and you have to take possession of that inheritance that Jesus has given you as his child. 
So the difference is in Joshua's time though, it was a physical war. And gosh, I don't know about you, but I would have made a lousy soldier. If I had to live during those times, I would have been one of those that was exempt in the law of Deuteronomy. Like, oh, if you have your weak of spirit, don't go out and fight, stay home. That would probably been me. You know, some of you are much more courageous, much more stronger, much more able to make it a go. So I'm glad that it's a war that is mostly fought by the Lord today. But in Joshua's day, it was tough and they had to stand. They were able to stand because of God's good word and to stop the spread of evil in that generation. So how is God's love shown through this book that is about war and conquest. Sometimes it may be hard for some of us to reconcile a God of love, a God of mercy and forgiveness, like I shared with you in God's character series, with one that commanded death and destruction for those people. And this is why some people believe that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. But I tell you, they are one and the same. If anything, this reflects God's hatred of evil, not of people, but of evil, of these insidious forces. And if you give me some time, I'll share you how. Well, we know that in Genesis and Job, we were presented when we studied those books with the reality of evil in the world. This is a reality that you can either accept or ignore. But the reality is there is evil in the world. And this evil is called the Satan in, the, in Hebrew. It means the accuser. There is a malicious, insidious force working in this realm completely against you. It is a force working not only to make you miserable, but to destroy you, but to set you apart from God. And sometimes this sin can assault you directly, sometimes indirectly, by bringing you to a boil in your permissiveness, in your desensitization of sin, in trying to give you comfort in the things of the world. That's how insidious it is. You don't know it's working, but it is working in the background, trying to separate you from the only thing that can make you stand, which is your faith in Christ. And God hates that. He hates that there is this evil trying to separate his children from him his goodwill for you, his desire for you, his inheritance for you, and this insidious force that is trying to uh, get you apart from God. But as we have seen in the book of Genesis, where there is evil, God's goal is to eradicate it. So if people get swept up in this culture of evil, if people allow this insidious force to uh, hypnotize them, to lull them to sleep. They are going to be swept up in it. God will give you over to it and you will become something devoted to destruction as this world will be. You see that phrase a lot in Joshua, things devoted to destruction. The city of Jericho was the first one, the first fruits of, of Joshua's conquest. So as a first fruit, it was devoted to God and everything in it was devoted to destruction. And that just shows us how if we choose those things, if we choose the world, we will be swept along with the destruction that will swiftly come onto it. That is the warning 
in this book for us in this day. Remember, you know, all, that, all those Canaanite uh, nations that got wrapped up in their evil were to receive God's prescribed judgment that he had forecasted in Genesis. It was not something new. It was something that they knew. And we'll get to that passage in a moment. You get what you choose. That's the ultimate uh, lesson here. Remember that if you decide that you want to stand against God and for yourself or for the world, along with sin and deception, if you choose to walk the broad road, you will get what you choose, which is destruction at the very end of it. Always remember that the narrow path is narrow for a reason. It is something you have to choose. If you don't make a choice, you will by nature choose the broad path. That's the path of least resistance. You have to make a conscious choice, which is what we hear Joshua saying at the very end of his speech. Choose you today whom you will serve. You have to make a choice. God wants us to choose life and peace. His commandments are life. That's what we read throughout Deuteronomy. But we have to make the choice. God commands the extermination of evil in our lives. If we're going to be people that are going to associate ourselves with a holy God, we need to get rid of evil. We need to put aside evil. First, we need to identify it. Then we need to give it up, put it to the side. And Joshua is commanded, that's why he's commanded to exterminate the Canaanites that they were going uh, into their land to invade, to take over. And this is why. In Genesis 15, 13 through 16, we read, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. This is the prophecy. This was a prophecy that Abraham's descendants were going to end up in Egypt. But notice what it says here in verse 15. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth century, that's 400 years, kind of around the time when the Israelites were released from Egypt, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. So that's an interesting phrase. What does he mean by the sin of the Amorites? That sin, uh, that evil, they were just starting to participate. And these Amorites were eventually the ones that ended up living in the land of Canaan. That's who the Amorites were. And so this culture, this ungodly culture, started to practice many things that were uh, detestable in the eyes of the Lord, things that God really wanted to get rid of, that he tried to get rid of in the flood. But eventually, because of man's nature, the culture of evil started back up again. And among some of the sins of the Amorites, or you could say sins of the Canaanites, there were many. You can read the entire chapter uh, 18 of Leviticus is dedicated to God talking about what some of these sins were. But amongst them and to top them, it was sins resulting from the worship of Baal and the worship of Asherah, these false gods, that built up a sexually degenerate and immoral culture and a culture that sacrificed their children to the fire. And so those were among the things that God 
really detested among this culture. So God had promised not to send a worldwide flood again. So how was he going to deal? He dealt with these locally as opposed to globally as he did before with the evil that had propped up. Now it was a localized flood, if you will, a localized dealing of destruction. And he was going to use his holy warriors to do so, to exterminate this culture because these people were going to not damage the culture of the Israelites, but eventually the culture of the entire world. And God's promise to Abraham was that through the Israelites, the whole world would be blessed. But how was it going to happen if they didn't exterminate the evil? And so that was the nature of these wars in the book of Joshua. As Leviticus 18.24 says, God had told them, don't defile yourself in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. So they represented all that was going wrong with the culture at their time. Basically, any generation that ignores God and his goodwill will have to face the consequences of their sin. It took about 400 years for the Amorites and the Canaanites to face these consequences, but eventually they did come. Okay, there's only so much that God is going to take, but he will punish swiftly all these who participate, all those who participate in these kinds of things. So we could either be people who question God's justice, revealing our ignorance about morality and spiritual authority. We have to understand we don't have the capacity to understand God's judgments. We barely have the capacity to understand some localized form of judgment. We don't have the capacity to discern how evil multiplies across the generations and how all these sins eventually will turn out. As God even said here, you, this won't happen until the sin of the Amorites had reached its full stature. We don't even know what that means. Only God could judge something like that. But as we learn from the book of Job, it's not, our goal is not to understand these things because we will never understand them. But our goal really is to trust God's judgment and to trust God's instruction when it comes to justice. We have enough evidence in the biblical text to know that our Lord is a loving God, one who is worthy to be trusted, one who has our best interest in mind. Plus, even if that wasn't true, what choice do you have as a puny little human being? <laughs> it's either life with God or death. And that's the bottom line. What are you going to choose? Life or death? I don't know about you, but for me and my household, we will choose life. And that's my goal. Thankfully, as we know, we do serve a merciful God who maintains his love, as we read here before in Exodus 34, 7, maintains his love to thousands of generations and forgives wickedness, forgives rebellion, forgives the sin of these thousands of generations. Yet, if a generation is guilty and decides to turn aside from God, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's what we have to understand about God as well. And that is his love displayed. He punishes the children and their children for the sin up to the third and fourth generation. But notice that even within those passages, we see God's mercy. He only punishes. His punishment is limited throughout the generation. But he's looking to forgive and to display love for thousands 
Yet there are some sins that God is just not going to look away from. I don't know what they are. I don't know how much patience has. I don't know when God's grace runs out because those are above my pay grade. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm not going to be the person who's going to explore the limits of God's grace. I'm not going to be the person who's going to tempt the Lord to see how far I can go because that mentality therein is a mentality of wickedness and of evil. So as that generation in Joshua, as they were charged to take over evil and instead replace a culture of evil with a culture of holiness, that's our charge today. They were a shadow of what we're doing today, as the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, that we may become blameless and pure, a children uh, without fault in a, in a warped and crooked generation. And by the way, Paul was quoting Deuteronomy 32, 5 when he said that. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And that's the key. As you hold firmly to the word of life, as you will see in our next encouragement here. So just as Joshua, just as his generation was warned not to fall for the practices of the Canaanites as they were taking over the land. That's why they were told to exterminate. And as you will read in the book of Judges, you see that they didn't really do that. They did not exterminate everything. And so it came to pass that those they left behind became a snare and a trap to the generations that were left. And that is a warning to us. When we don't, when we're not decisive to get rid of the evil around us, then that very evil is going to become a trap for us, thorns for our eyes. It's very descriptive what he says there. So we must be careful not to fall for the counterculture of the world around us. And I'm using that word counterculture in a different sense because the world would call us Christians a counterculture. But it's not really so because the culture of the people of God has never changed. And by definition, a counterculture is a culture that changes with the times. So if you ask yourself, what culture has changed with the times? The world. Because as the world progresses, it adopts different ways. It turns to different things. So they are really the counterculture. We are God's culture. And we're called to have an influence over that counterculture. And sometimes you may be overwhelmed and say, well, how can we be so few have such an impact when the world just seems so overwhelming. But isn't that the very question Joshua asked himself in his generation? You have to believe that you've inherited the promises. You have to grab hold of them. And you have to follow these five encouragements that I'm going to give you now. This is today's practical lesson for you. How to stay on the narrow path. How not to fall for the counterculture around you. But as Joshua's people, as the Lord's very own people, how to stand firm in this wicked and rebellious generation and still shine your light forward. These are the five ways that God told Joshua at chapter 1. 1 through 4 are derived from chapter 1. Number 5 is derived from the speech Joshua gave at the end of his life. Number 1. You need to remember that God will never leave you nor forsake you. It is kind of scary entering a, a foreign land, a land that represents everything that you're against. <laughs> you know, it might be your job for you. It might be your family even. It might be your neighborhood. 
But in reality, we are strangers in a strange land. Yet, we're called to have a godly influence, something that we cannot achieve on our own, but something that God says, you got it. I gave it to you. It's subdued. All you got to do is take it and take a stand because it does not depend on our power, but it's dependent upon the power of God. It is his will for evil to be subdued by his people, right? Do not be overcome by evil, the scripture says, but overcome evil with good. You can do it. And as he says here in Joshua 1, 5, no one will be able to stand against you. There is no force of evil that can stand against you. The one in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And as God was with Moses, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And this is the first time he said it. he's going to say this about three times. Why? Because we need to remember it's very easy for us to get discouraged because we do feel alone sometimes. And that's why the second thing he tells Joshua is to be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore, be strong and courageous. Bears repeating, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn to the left or to the right. We're being warned here. The spiritual forces of evil around you are gonna try to tell you that it's okay to turn to the left that it's okay to turn to the right, that you're gonna be more comfortable if you turn to the right, that you're gonna be more accepted if you turn to the left. This is what the insidious force of evil is trying to have you believe. But we can't stray our eyes to the left or to the right. We need to focus on the word of God. That's how we're gonna be able to be strong and courageous. We need to be careful, highlight careful, to obey God's word. And the promise is you will be successful wherever you go. This is not promising material success. I don't want you to be deceived because <laughs> the forces of evil might try to tempt you with that or might try to tell you, oh, yeah, you're, look at you. You're poor or you have all these problems. So God is not blessing you. No, we learned from Job that's not the case. Don't fall for that. The success promised here to you it's a success far greater than any success you could have in this world. It's the success of the eternal inheritance of Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world is worth that. So keep that in mind. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Don't be tempted by the things that deceive the people in the world. Don't be led astray by the ideologies and philosophies other people prescribe to. They are not life. Only God's word is life. So he says here, keep God's word on your lips. That's the third encouragement. You need to keep the law of the Lord. You need to keep the words of God on your lips, on your mind. He says here, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it. It's not just read it. It's not just quote it. Meditate on it. Think about it so that you may be careful to do everything. You see, the word of God, if we're going to be fully obedient to God, we need to study it in order to be careful about it. You can't be careful about something unless you actually study it and know it well. We are called to be people who know God's word 
Well, why? Because the forces of evil can use God's word to try to twist it around you. Isn't that what Satan did to Jesus while he was in the wilderness? Use God's word against him, against the very word of God. You think he's not going to try that against you if he tried that against Christ? Keep the word of God on your lips. Obey it. Learn to follow what it says. Brothers and sisters, this takes time. You know, I've I'm, I'm been in Christ over 35 years and I still don't know everything. I have to study it carefully. And every time I study it carefully, I learn new things. No one is going to ever achieve a status where they're going to say, I know the word of God. I don't need to look at it anymore. <laughs> That's a big deception. <laughs> We need to continue in it without being afraid and without being discouraged, as he's going to say here in the fourth encouragement, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Why is he saying this? Because most likely you're going to be afraid. Because most likely you're going to end up being discouraged. Of course, he understands that. Who better understood that than Jesus himself? I mean, Jesus lived a very lonely, solitary life. We know that from the prophets. He felt so alone, even when he was surrounded by 12 men who wanted to do the right thing. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Christianity is not for the faint of heart. Christianity is not for the snowflake. Christianity is for men and for women. We're going to shore up and going to take a stand against the evil in the world. And by God's grace and power, they will overcome. Because Jesus says, you will overcome. That's why. And so don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Be strong, he says here. And courageous. This is the third time he says that phrase. Be strong and courageous. Shore up that strength. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. God is with you. You're not alone. Even you might feel alone. You're not alone. Strength and courage are required when your friends and family mock you. When they turn against you. When they say that what you do is evil when it's from God. Be courageous when evil seems to triumph and the righteous seem to be trampled upon. Be bold. Be courageous. Realize that God is with you. Peter will say they, meaning the world, uh, they're surprised you don't join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. This might be your co-workers. This might even be some of your family members. They mock you, heap abuse. But they will give account. There's going to be a day, just like the Amorites met their end at the end of a, the tip of a sword for their wickedness. These people will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You keep that in mind, that God is watching and God knows what's going on. The Spirit will say through Paul here, don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign. This is how you take this, brothers and sisters. When somebody is opposing you, mocking you, heaping abuse on you, because you are a child of God, that is a sign to you that you're doing the right thing, that you will be saved. And it's a sign to them, whether they realize it or not at the moment, that they will be destroyed, that they will be given over to destruction. You keep that in mind, because that is a very visible sign. Whether you hear it or whether you see it, it's given to you as a sign of encouragement to not be discouraged, 
and to not be afraid. And point number five, to stay on the narrow path. Listen to Joshua, as he said here, choose whom you will serve. That's a daily choice. I don't know about you, but I have to remember who I am serving every day that I wake up. I have to make a choice. Who will I serve? Am I going to fall for the gods that surround my culture, the God of money, the God of education, the God of popularity, the God of social media, or whatever numerous gods? We live in a very polytheistic society today, whether people realize it or not. Am I going to give myself to that? Am I going to uh, let my peace be stolen away because of these gods? Or will I choose to take a stand and put the armor of God and not be afraid and not be discouraged and remember that my Lord is with me wherever I go. I am a force to be reckoned with because he who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. I'm a force to be reckoned with in this realm. Not because of me, but because of who lives in me. And he will be with you. Decide you, man of God, you're the head of your household. Decide every day whom you will serve. Make that choice. Stand by it and be an example. Because evil is going to come around from every side to try to bring you down. To try to intimidate you. But just remember who is in you. And don't be afraid. And don't be discouraged. As Joshua chose here, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Decide to take a stand on God's word and ways. And you will be successful. That's the Lord promising you that. You will be successful, even when it may not seem to. So this leads us right into how we can find Christ in the book of Joshua. Well, Joshua, as I said before, is, is a mini Armageddon. It's like a shadow of Armageddon. Armageddon is the battle that's going to occur in the last day. And it's going to be the shortest battle ever recorded. Because Satan and his warriors are going to come out. And then the next second, they're going to be defeated. <laughs> it's the shortest battle ever recorded because it shows that no one can stand against God. No one can stand against his goodness. So if we take a stand with God, we're choosing the winning side. See, oftentimes, as Joshua, uh, when he saw the commander of the, of the forces of the Lord, and he said, oh, are you on our side? You know, sometimes we want to bring God over to our side. And the commander of the Lord saw me and said, I'm not on anybody's side. Meaning, I'm on the Lord's side. There's only one side here to be on. And it's not on your side, Israel. We stand for the Lord. So that taught a lesson to Joshua, and it teaches us a lesson today. It's not about, oh, God, do this for me. Oh, God, bless me here. No, no, it's about you making sure you are on the side of the Lord. Because without him, you will get nowhere. You need to make sure in your careful study of the word of God that you're identifying yourself as someone on his side. Because God is on no one's side. You need to make sure you're on his side if you're going to triumph. Because as Joshua led the people into battle, and his name, the Bible says here in the book of Joshua, became feared and respected throughout all the region because they, they heard what had happened. They heard how the Lord God saved them from Egypt, the most powerful nation at the time. And so they were filled with fear 
as he surrounded Jericho and marched around the city, they were melting in fear, as Rahab said. And so that is a shadow of when Christ, the warrior on the white horse, is revealed in the skies for every eye to see. As John described here in Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. You see, the war is not over yet. It hasn't even started, the real one. <laughs> and what a sight that will be. Just as people, when they saw Joshua and his horses and his army come, they trembled with fear. So that will be a dreadful day when the rider on the white horse is revealed and coming up in the heavens. As uh, John also points out in 1.7, look, he is coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Because everybody will be raised. Everybody is going to see this happen. Everyone will see this unfold. And some people will be filled with dread and terror as the citizens of Jericho were on that day when they heard the Israelites marching around the city. Because they knew for sure that if the Lord was with Joshua, they were already being given over to destruction. And so that's the, that's the fate of this world. When Jesus appears in the, in the clouds, that's the end. It is over. And if you're on the side of the Lord, you're going to be rejoicing and happy. But if you're not, you are going to be filled with dread and with fear. As Joshua led the people across the Jordan to the promised land, he came upon the commander of the Lord's army here in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And as he did that, and as he led his people across the Jordan, so Jesus is going to be coming and leading us because Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army. Look what it says here in Revelation 19. We're, we're continuing to read where we left off before. The armies of heaven were following him. Following who? The rider on the white horse. The one whose name is faithful and true. Dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth, out of the mouth of the rider of the white horse, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Wow, that will be a sight for us to see. And I urge you to choose this day whom you are going to serve. This is the charge that every generation is given. Because God will only be detained for a little while. He was detained for 400 years till the Amorites met their end. He detained Egypt's uh, treachery over Israel, making them slaves, forced labor for 400 years, and then they're in king. Similarly for the Amorites, 400 years. That seems to be a time limit. And so there will be a day when this world is going to meet that fate. We see it over and over again in the scriptures as a sign to us saying, God is not kidding. This will happen. We must get ready. Just like in Jericho, when the Ark 
of the Lord was circling that city. They did so for seven days. I think that that was a sign of God's mercy. I think God was kind of giving them some time. I mean, already Rahab had decided that she was going to take part of the Israelites. She already knew. She had faith. Wasn't that faith? Some people will, will say, oh, she, she abandoned her citizens. Hey, no, no, that was wisdom. There is no loyalty to evil. Break your loyalty to evil. There is no loyalty. It's not loyal to you. And develop a loyalty to God, just like Rahab did. When push came to shove, Rahab made the right choice. And this was even before the armies of the Lord were circling the city of Jericho. But God decided, he said, okay, one came forward. Let's see if there are more. And so that shows God's mercy. Those seven days of that army marching around. I don't know how it's going to be in the last days. I think that right now, these last 2,000 years, I don't know how many times the ark has circled this world. One, two, three, four, I don't know. But there's going to be a day when that's it. It's circled for the last time, and the trumpets are going to start to blow. And we know in the book of Revelation, there are seven trumpets. And it's at the sound of the last trumpet that Paul says, then the dead shall rise. And then this world shall be no more. So Jericho is like a mini Armageddon, isn't it? It's a shadow, a physical shadow, a movie of perhaps how things are going to turn out in the last day when they will become reality. And those trumpets are going to sound. And at the sound of the last trumpet, all the dead shall rise. And in twinkling of an eye, we will be changed from mortal to immortal. Believe the good news. That's what this is about. You know, only those with the scarlet thread, the blood of Jesus, will be spared from being devoted to destruction. Rahab was told to hang a scarlet thread outside the window. And that scarlet thread was a shadow of the scarlet thread that weaves all the books of the Bible together. The story of the gospel leading to the Messiah. His blood is the real scarlet thread that is on us when we decide, like Rahab did, to no longer be part of evil, but to give ourselves over to the armies of the Lord God in Jesus Christ. And today we do that by being baptized in Christ. When we decide to be immersed in Christ, as Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4 says, we are deciding like Rahab did, okay, I'm not going to be part of this world anymore. I don't want to be part of this realm. I want to identify as a child of God. And so we symbolically, when we get baptized, we're symbolically laying aside our life, dying to self, dying in Christ, being joined in Jesus' death. And as he was buried, being buried with him in water. And as he was raised from the dead, being raised to live in newness of life. So that now we stand with God's armor on the truth, being agents of light. That's how we take the stand nowadays. And so this is the gospel fulfilled. Rahab didn't know the gospel as we know it today. Yet she was smart enough to have heard what the Lord did without seeing it. And by faith decide, 
I'm going to be on God's side. And she was blessed. She even became a part of the Lord's genealogy. And so the question for us today is, what are you going to do? Where do you stand? Choose this day whom you will serve. I'll leave you with this passage in Matthew. The Lord Jesus said, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds, these are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil, Satan, the accuser. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will weed out his kingdom. Everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Have a good afternoon. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.